This is Plan B, Episode 7, for May 21st, 2013. Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show contemplating the future and present of Bitcoin with insights for the novice, shop talk for the expert, and opinionated discussion for the interested observer of Bitcoin and related technologies. My name is Chris and joining me every single week is my co-host, Drew. Hello, how's it going? Hey man, Uh, welcome to episode 7. Another big show, as always. A huge show this week. Coming up, we're going to do a Q&A special. We're going to get some of the uh, beginner questions that have come into the show answered. But we're also going to have a chat with Amir Taki, I believe is how you say his last name. I'll, uh, I'll get a definitive on that when we get him on the line. And talk to him about some of the things he's worked on and some of the things he's worked on in the past, like the Electrum Bitcoin wallet. And in the discussion segment, we're going to bring on Ben Morris from the Port Forward podcast to tell us about his adventures at the Bitcoin 2013 Future of Payments conference that went down this past weekend. So, Drew, biggest show ever, I think, potentially. Yeah, yeah. we're still gaining show. steam. Come on. That's right. We're just getting started. All right. Well, why don't we uh, kick things off with a voicemail because we want to do a little uh, feedback at the top of the show. And our first one came on, uh, came in just a couple of days ago. Hey, guys. Love the show. Uh, I've been listening for a couple episodes now. I want to help a local merchant accept Bitcoin as payment for sandwiches. What's the easiest or best way to do that? I'll keep listening. Thanks. Wow, combining two of our favorite things, Drew. <laughs> Bitcoin <laughs> Well, it depends sandwiches. on the kind of sandwich. That's true. <laughs> uh, so, boy, I, he didn't say where he was located. But I'm going to guess he's in the U.S. And I would say probably, what, BitPay? Does that come? That came to your mind? That was the first thing that I thought of. Yeah. Because it allows them to take Bitcoins as Bitcoins or convert the Bitcoins at the time of purchase to regular currency. So right. it's and easy for people to adopt. They just need to be able to display the website or have a, a smartphone or tablet that could bring it up. And then you just need to have a smartphone or tablet that has a wallet on there. Um, and they offer, uh, they offer a couple of different services. Coinbase is another one. That he could check out. Coinbase will do some uh, some merchant stuff, uh, so definitely check that out. But I would probably say right now the one that's got a lot of uh, stink behind it, and they just got five mil cash, although Coinbase just got some cash too, Ooh. is uh, BitPay. And uh, I've been experimenting with both, so right now for the show, I'm using Coinbase because they allow, um, like, you know, here, push a button, right? And you push this button, and then boom, now you've got uh, donation buttons, and you can set your own custom amount, and it's really nice. But BitPay... One of the cool things that BitPay does is they appear to offer this sort of uh, intermediary service where you can even do Amazon fulfillment, where you can have like an Amazon store on your website and you can accept Bitcoins for payments of those items. So whereas Coinbase is sort of uh, maybe a little more basic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. BitPay is offering a whole range of of payment conversion services. It's it's more of a full-fledged payment gateway, whereas Coinbase is, you know, for a sandwich, it's definitely going to get the job done. <laughs> Correct, yes. <laughs> right? And for somebody like me who wants to take a donation on a website, uh, Coinbase gets the job done. Although I'm experimenting oh, yeah. with BitPay, too. Both both good solutions. And you know what? Good for you. Combining Bitcoin advocacy and sandwiches is, is always an okay thing in our book. All right. Well, I think his name's pronounced Roland. <clears throat> he emailed in. And he's coming. Uh, he's coming in uh, from uh, 
from the Lost Coins discussion that we had, uh, let me get the uh, his email up on the screen, the Lost Coins discussion that we had, uh, I think it was last week, he says there's really no way you can ever see the difference between a lost coin and hoarded coins. So the value of coins can only be related to the number of transactions and number of spent coins. If there are a lot of transactions, the value goes down and prices go up. If everybody is hoarding or a lot of coins get lost, the value goes up and the prices go down. He even includes a little uh, Wikipedia link here, which you guys can check out to kind of give you some math of it. He says, so uh, when there is a lot of hoarding, then the prices will end up going down. So consumers aren't necessarily hurt by this. And it's interesting, there was an article that came out of the Bitcoin 2013 Future of Payments um, conference. And this writer kind of focused in on this point and said, you know, I asked these guys that are taking payments for their goods with Bitcoin, I said, well, aren't you worried about uh, the deflationary aspect or aren't you worried about hoarding? And their response is, well, we just respond by the market pressure by either lowering the price. So when the price of Bitcoin goes up, we'll adjust our prices and then people spend. But he says they're also observing sort of the wealth effect. And this is something you guys can look up where people often get more generous when they spend. And I've noticed that we, we've gotten some donations in Bitcoin, which have been generous. We've, and when you're on the Bitcoin subreddit, people will tip you for good content in the subreddit, just in the comments section. Um, so there is a certain like generosity mode that some people go into. Um, but he says the price of goods and services will go up as S goes up, or, you know, in this case, also, if the number of goods and services offered in the market increases, the price of those goods and services will go down. Keep up the good work, and uh, yeah, is in Flanders. Interesting, interesting thoughts there. And he he included the uh, Wikipedia link if you guys are more interested in that. Um, so Drew, I wanted to say a special thank you to uh, our uh, iTunes users out there. They've been uh, rating and commenting on the show and helping us uh, keep visibility in the iTunes store. So I really appreciate that. And if you haven't yet rated or commented on the Plan B iTunes store entry. I know not all of you love iTunes, but if you have it installed, you could do us a favor because what that does is that increases our discoverability in the iTunes store. And the nice thing about that is a lot of people out there right now are looking for more, for more information about Bitcoin, but they just don't know where to get it. I hear this a lot. And by, by helping us stay in those rankings in iTunes, people discover our show. But I'm going to give Ben a call. Ben... I uh, I have had the pleasure to talk to Ben. He's from the Port Forward podcast, and he's been on our show, Coda Radio, a couple of times. Hey, Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. What's up? How's it going? Hey, man. So you went to the Bitcoin 2013 Future of Payments conference this weekend, the future. huh? <laughs> I did. It was a crazy story because I was up really late Thursday night, uh, so Friday morning at 1 a.m., and I heard uh, Plan B podcast, and you guys <laughs> talked about the show, and I had no idea that the conference was even going on. Oh, really? Okay? <laughs> so I tweeted you on Twitter, and I said, I love, hate you, Chris, for telling me about it, but it's too expensive because I can't go. Okay? Right, right. I and saw so that. within within two hours, Ralph the Ninja gave me 1.5 Bitcoins to fund me. That was just, great. He's and, and I guess he was just <laughs> monitoring the Twitter stream, right? Yeah, it was crazy, okay? And then at that point, I just started holding out my hand and saying, everybody, please fund me to this conference because I said, well, if one guy will do it, someone else will do it, right? <laughs> so at Freedom, at Freedom Factory gave me another 0.25 Bitcoins. Um, so that was sort of the donations I got. Uh, and then actually I ended up hooking up with Cash Hill. I ended up driving her from San Francisco all the way to San Jose. Right. Uh, Cashmere Hill, gave, the uh, Forbes writer. Exactly. And she gave me another half a Bitcoin. <laughs> Uh, what do you and Cashmere here talk? Cashmere Hill talk about on the way to the Bitcoin conference? Mostly, we talked about you. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Hey. Oh, good things. <laughs> no, of course, of course. We talked about all kinds of things. I actually found out that she's, um, well, she does, you know, privacy and stuff reporting yeah, for yeah, Forbes. Yeah. She's also into the drone scene, so she might like the Unfilter show. I don't oh, know. Oh, snaps. Didn't know. Yeah, Maybe I'll have to get her on for that. 
Yeah, we talked a lot about things. We talked about how she couldn't get coffee. I tried to get some ideas from her about the hackathon because she uh, she ran into all these different problems during her one week. You know, so I was seeing what can I solve, what pain points can I solve with an application or something like that. So yeah, it was it was pretty cool. Well, that is that is really neat. And uh, so you went down there. Did you go for the whole thing? I went for the whole thing uh, just to finish up the tally. Uh, one guy I drove back, I forgot his name, but he gave me a whole Bitcoin. So in total, I totaled up at 3.25 Bitcoins, which funded my entire trip and gas. That's awesome. So it's pretty awesome. So yeah, I went the whole time. The, the first day, the Winklevi twins were up, uh, up on stage and they mm-hmm. gave a talk. Mm-hmm. And it was actually, it was a pretty lame talk. They gave a talk as if no one knew what Bitcoin was or mm-hmm. people were kind of skeptical about it. But if you're at the conference, everybody already loves Bitcoin. Yeah. So yeah, that was okay. Yeah. Um, I actually got to meet them later, which was pretty cool too. But um, you know, it was a really big conference. The I think my favorite thing was the ATM. There was a, there was actually two ATMs, but the the coolest one was from Lamasu, uh, and I dropped a hundred dollars in there, and that was pretty cool. And uh, it was it was basically the the fastest and easiest way I had gotten Bitcoin in my whole life. So that was really nice. And it worked by you. So you put the money in, and then you put your phone in kind of a cutout slot they had, where they had a QR yep. scanner in there. Mm-hmm. Was that for privacy? Did you ask them about that? Um, no, I think it was. I didn't ask them about that. Um, it was just like a glass window, and then the camera had like a, a three inches for focal, you know, uh, focusing or whatever. And it was uh, it just was, at current market value, huh? And you just had yep. the Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, and <clears> then uh, the operator of the ATM can set the price you take on top, um, and then that's just what it shows up on the screen. Is the the, the percentage is included all all the way in there? So. Uh, is the rate as far as the transaction rate, right? The merchant already gets their cut. Yeah. So you don't even get to see what the merchant's taking their cut. You just get to see the value that you're going to get it at. So, you know, I, I heard not, uh, I didn't hear a lot from the conference. One of the things I heard about is that uh, Ripple, pardon the pun, made some waves. Did you see much from the Ripple project <clears throat> or hear anything about that? I did. I did see Ripple. I did see them. I didn't hear much, anything specifically about that, what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw there was a lot of really cool places, uh, a lot of cool uh, booths that were set up. There was Coinbase, there was BitPay. Bit Instant. Um, there was Coin Lab, which is a, a Bitcoin um, incubator for startups, mm-hmm. which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was also the Bitcoin Fund, which is a hedge fund where you can buy in uh, with cash and manage bitcoins. Uh, and the minimum buy-in was a hundred thousand dollars. So they were the big, they were big players there. I also heard that there was people with booths where they just kind of had cash out on the floor and just right there they were just doing in-person trades. You put the cash down and you get a bitcoin, and they would transfer to you. Did you see any of that going on? Uh, no, that that sounded pretty cool though. Oh, okay. I think the ATMs. The, I think they ran seventy five thousand dollars through the ATMs. So I mean, that's like a lot of transactions that people were really getting into Bitcoin. So tell me about the uh, Butterfly Labs booth because you know I have one on pre order. I got one too. Yeah, the the Labs was there. They had a wafer out. You know, they were uh, they had the little Android app there mining. It was mm-hmm. really cool. <laughs> uh, if you go to the the link in the show notes, you can see uh, the picture that I took. They have both one of the I guess the the small units, and then yeah. also I think they have a fifty giga hash unit right there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that that's really cool. <clears throat> All right. So the other thing I heard is that despite the fact that DA, uh, DHS just recently sur- uh, seized the Mt. Gox, um, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Shell Corporation account here in the U.S., uh, not many people were even talking about Gox. No, nobody show. really was talking about it. I mean, Gox couldn't make it because they were dealing with their legal stuff. But I mean, everybody was really focusing on like new ideas and what we can do. And it's really interesting because the financial community has really like gotten the idea. Yeah. And so they're basically you know, piling tons and tons of money for people that have good ideas. Um, so everybody is really, really excited about the space. And it's about, I mean, it's about to blow up. Now, you could look at that as a bad thing because you could say, well, the financial community is going to try to regulate it mm-hmm. or going to try to do, you know, the usual thing that they do. But I mean, it's good that that it's valid now that Bitcoin, in my opinion, we've made it. We've hit critical mass, you know. 
maybe that's not true, but you know, that seems, that's what everybody seems to think. Right. So yeah. we're kind of on our way. Did you get, did you get the sense there was a lot more suits there uh, than you would expect? Or what was your it sense was, of that? It was probably 50, 50, but there were a lot of suits. Um, there was, uh, there was three tracks, uh, you know, uh, for the conference talks and one was technology and one was business and one was financial like regulations or whatever. So so according to the talks, two out of three were for the suits and one was for the nerds. But in general, it was about 50-50 as far as the, okay. the breakdown, right? So, <laughs> yeah. I, I have heard reports about 1,000, 1,100 people. Is that the sense you got? Uh, yeah, that was, that was really good. I wanted to tell you a quick little story. I was, I was sitting at a table with some, just some people I'd met, and this guy came up and he said, hey, do you guys want um, to buy some Bitcoins? And we kind of looked at him like kind of weird, like why would – like who are you? Like this seems really sketchy, right? And then someone said, well, why are you doing this? And he said, oh, well, I don't have any money. I'm just trying to get money here. I'm, I, you know, I just need some cash. And everybody at the table then said, oh, yeah, let's do it. Like their opinion flipped immediately. So because the community is really helpful about each other, if you just say, listen, I need some help. This is what I need. The community will come and, and, and sponsor you or come and come to your aid. It was really cool. That is really cool. And uh, it's still at that point, it seems like where it's small enough where you actually get to meet uh, people, you actually get a sense for what with the people behind some of these projects. Anything surprise you? Um, I don't know. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. One thing surprised me. So there was the, there was a hackathon, which I actually entered into. Um, and the winner of the hackathon wasn't very, it wasn't a very technical project. It was more of like a, a, a slide deck, like you would see it on an investor presentation. Mm -hmm. So they kind of went up there and they pitched their idea and all the, all the, uh, the panel loved it. And they said, okay, you win the hackathon. And it was more <laughs> of like a, like a vision, like, hmm. oh, let's have this really great financial, how can we make all this money on Bitcoin as opposed to a real hackathon, in my opinion, which is focused on like, this is a cool technical trick or you know you did something really cool here in 24 hours or whatever um so uh yeah did you get a chance to see any of the hardware wallets i did there was a few hardware wallets um i got to see uh i think it's butterfly labs yeah, has yeah. a little square one <laughs> yeah of course butterfly labs has a concept device that we can all uh, gawk at right right um, there was another one i didn't get to see in person but i saw someone wearing it was a necklace that had a big bitcoin on it and it looked like some sort of hardware it would look like you were like your gangster gold wrap <laughs> like a gangster wrap necklace uh, and i guess that was a bitcoin wallet as well um <clears throat> i think it was called the Foundry, or I don't remember the name, but there was a uh, there was these guys that were doing an offline wallet where, in order to uh, in order to make transactions, you physically carried the transaction either by hand or on a USB stick on and off of this offline computer. So oh, you no want to say, yeah, so kind of like, like a vault almost. It is like a vault. So you walk it over and you plug it in and you make your transactions. So actually, that, that kind of makes a lot of sense if you are somebody that has maybe a few million in Bitcoin. Right, exactly. Yeah. You just have this laptop that's offline all the time, and and, yeah. it, and it signs all your transactions with your private key, and you're ready to go. Did you see anything there that you think we're going to see come to market really soon that we're all going to be talking about? I think the Bitcoin ATMs are going to be pretty cool. Um, the thing is that the legality isn't exactly established, so the sellers basically said that um, it's up to the person that buys the ATM and operates it to uh, deal with the legality issues. Hmm. Um, I would love to see one in my personal town. I don't know if it would be a good investment for me, but I mean, I definitely thought about buying one. What are right? the prices? So, uh, they they are five grand in singles and and four grand uh, if you get and buy them in bulk. If I was just a crazy person, though, I could buy a five thousand dollar ATM for my house. Yes. <laughs> I mean, just kind of want to do that. Right? I mean, why not? <laughs> I mean, I would never actually have the money to just blow like that. But if I did, I mean, I love the idea of like, hey, I feel like a Bitcoin right now. <laughs> uh -huh. Although I think they need to change them from ATMs to vending machines because then I think that changes a lot of the legal 
framework that they're underneath. So I think they've kind of made a mistake by uh, getting ATM out there. So, so uh, your co-host is, is is it Chase or is it Drew? I, I forgot his name. Oh, it's oh, <laughs> oh, he's doing it again. It's Drew. Uh, it's Drew. <laughs> Do you have any input, Drew? You've been kind of quiet this whole time. No, I know. Well, Chris is great at this, so he's tearing it up. <laughs> I do kind of, I do kind of monopolize. I'm sorry. Well, that's okay, Drew. Yeah, what do you think? Any anything you wondered happened at the conference or anything like that? Um, I did have something, but I forgot. So sorry. go ahead. That's all right, Ben. Um, are you going to be talking more about this on your show, the Port Forward podcast? I will. I will have in a couple exclusive interviews with some hackers and stuff like that um, that I met with. Um, yeah, it's called the Port Forward podcast. One one last thing, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to tell you about my hackathon entry, which ended up losing, but that's okay. Oh, sure. Um, so it's called Git Bitcoin. And the idea is that if you have an open source repo and you want to incentivize people to work on your project, you put a Bitcoin wallet associated with it and put a couple Bitcoins in there. And then the software will allow you to pay out for commits to the code that you feel are valuable. Uh, wow. And then you can, you can kind of add incent, incentiv- incentivize people like to say if you commit every month – the longer a run of months you commit in a row will increase your payout and you get a bonus for a first time commit and all these kind of ideas. So it's like the Reddit Bitcoin tip bot only on steroids applied to GitHub. Exactly. That's that's, that's a great that's idea. A, you should move forward with that, Ben, regardless. I, I definitely am thinking uh, no? of moving forward with it. I mean, that, that, that could really incentivize open source project development. And then, you know, even if it's just initially in the Bitcoin community, it might then you know spread out from there. So that's awesome, dude. Yeah. Um, even we could even apply it to the um, to the the Bitcoin client to get better work there. So it's kind of like a dog food effect there, anyways. So totally, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, go check out uh, portforwardpodcast dot com to catch uh, Ben's interviews, and also we'll have a link in the show notes to his imager gallery that he posted from uh, his uh, snaps at the conference. Ben, man, thanks for coming Thank on the you. show and telling us about it. Great, thanks. Talk to you guys soon. All right, have a good one. All right, bye bye. And I wish I could have gone. Maybe next year, Drew. Maybe next year we'll be able to go to that. We could do yeah, a show man. live there. I spent, yeah, I know, like do some, uh, like you did with the, uh, the uh, Linux, Linux, Fest. Linux Fest Northwest. Yeah, that would be but awesome. I, spent, I, I grew up in California, so pretty close to that area, so we might as well do it. Well, uh, RT has a brand new show called Prime Interest with a lovely and talented host who uh, I've been inter- interacting with on Twitter just recently. And uh, sh- they did an interview with uh, the founder of Bit, or, or the co-founder of Bit Instant. And his name is, uh, let me see here. Oh, but, uh, let's see here. His name is, he's also the CEO, Charlie Schrem. And uh, he's kind of an interesting character. And I thought while we're on the topic of the Bitcoin conference, since she got this interview, I'll link to her full interview. It was about 12, 13 minutes long. I'm going to play just a quick snip from it uh, to just to give you a little more information about BitInstant. Now, today we're going to feature the youngest, one of the youngest CEOs at the conference. Uh, he's one of the most successful, though. His name's Charlie Schrem, and he is the co-founder and CEO of BitInstant, which provides retail access to Bitcoins as a registered money transfer agent. Uh, he's 23 years old, and he wears a ring with his Bitcoin wallet on it. Uh, they call him Four Finger Charlie because uh, if you topped it off, uh, you could get all his money. Uh, the first question I asked Charlie was just to provide a little bit of background on what BitInstant is and what it does, uh, and here's his comments. BitInstant is the company that allows anyone to buy Bitcoin locally. So if you have a 7-Eleven, a Walmart, a CVS, Twain Reed, at your local location, you can go into these places and actually buy Bitcoin up to $2,000 worth every day. At the same time, if you have Bitcoin and you need for some reason to transfer back into dollars or any currency, we can put money into your bank account within 30 minutes. So we're servicing the under $10,000 customer where 
most people who are buying Bitcoin think that they need to go to these large exchanges and open up accounts and put trading orders in. You don't need to do that. When you go to Europe and you buy euros, you're either using your ATM card or you're going to one of these travel or change places to do that. And that's what BitInstant is poised to be. And how widespread is BitInstant? In the U.S., we're in 700,000 locations, um, but globally we're in 11 different countries. So you can buy Bitcoin at any post office or bank in Brazil, any airport or bank in Russia, where we're in the Caribbean islands, we're in Ukraine, we're in most of the Eastern European countries, um, and we are going to be in Australia and the U.K. by the end of the month. And you also just have very exciting news that you're releasing. The Winklevoss Capital has funded you a very large sum of money. I think it was $1.5 million. Yep. Cameron and Tyler are great guys. They, uh, I met them in Ibiza, actually gave them my lounge chair, and, uh, and that's how it all got started. Um, one of our first investors, David Azar, was there as well, and he kind of pitched them on this whole thing where he's been in the money service business for over 10 years. So he's like a veteran of the banking world. Um, and he came and said, wow, this Bitcoin thing is really going to overturn the whole financial infrastructure. And he pitched them on it and he introduced them to me. They're like, yeah, you have to meet this Charlie guy, board genius, blah, blah, blah. And we all met and it was love at first sight. We all got together and started building the company. They actually invested... Um, I would say like six months ago, we just recently announced it, announced it. We wanted to make sure that everything was good and that we had all our ducks in a row. Um, at the time, I was running the company out of my basement. We had three employees. It was a joke. And they picked me up and they said, Charlie, you have to make this thing. Now we're 16 employees, 16 team members. We're going to be 18 people by the end of the month. We're moving to a new Soho office as well in a few weeks. We have finally money transmitter licensing in over 30 states. Um, and federal license as well uh, with, with FinCEN. So we really, really pushed a lot and did really, really good things. He went on to talk about how difficult the regulation uh, situation is in the United States and what a minefield it is. Uh, and he also, I can't even imagine. I know. Can you imagine trying to get well, started said, in something like this? And he said they've got, they've got legit licenses in 30-something, 30 36 states, something like that. That's awesome. And I think it's also interesting that, they're, uh, that the twins invested in, in them several months ago, but they only announced it now. That way they could kind of get their crap all together. And I was just demoing it in the uh, video version for the uh, live stream, folks, but uh, BitInstant is going to be rolling out a brand new website. They demoed it at uh, uh, the Bitcoin conference, and then the URL leaked online so everybody could go look at it. It's new.bitinstant.com. So here's the new version if you're watching the video stream. And and I'll load up the old version, and I'll tell you, the new version looks considerably more legit than the old version. As yeah. somebody who's used BitInstant before, and I've lost money, and I've also not lost money. I've used BitInstant several times. Uh, but the, the biggest advantage they offer is this local cash deposit. And they offer, in my small little hick town, 40 minutes, 40, 40, uh, 40 60 minutes north of Seattle, maybe 65 minutes north of Seattle, uh, there's like seven locations for me to choose from that I can go to within five minutes of my house to make cash deposits into Bitcoin. Yeah, that's a great thing. I'm, I'm thinking about, I might have to do this instead of that local Bitcoin thing that we were talking about pre-show. Well, and but he man. said something, Charlie said something, other than also sounding like they're trying to do everything by the legit and by the book, is he said that they're targeting the sub-$10,000 $10, transaction customer. You know, they're, they're, they're just targeting people who want to move a few hundred bucks in and out of Bitcoin. And that's me. Definitely. Yeah, it must be in most people, too. I would think, right? you know, yeah. Yeah. And Trade Hill is going to focus on the high end market. And uh, uh, well, let's not talk about Mt. Cox. They just they just upset me too much. Uh, so, yeah, the wiki, the the wiki loves oh, whatever the twins, the Facebook, the, the, you know, the, the guys, yeah, those the, guys, the handsome twins. Let's just call them the handsome twins. Oh, yeah. Uh, they uh, along with uh, David Azar are investing in BitInstant. BitInstant is a New York based startup. And like you heard uh, uh, Charlie say, they're going to go to 16 employees. Um, 
which is pretty impressive for a 23-year-old, although he really actually does seem to have his stuff together. I've, I've seen him in a, in a couple other interviews as well. So there you go, folks. We have a bunch more links on the Bitcoin 2013 uh, conference, but thanks to Ben, that was a lot of the stuff that grabbed our attention. Um, you know, I guess what, well, the, you know, Ben touched on this. The ATMs were big. Um, the CBC did a piece on uh, ATMs for Bitcoins. The world's first ever Bitcoin ATM is coming to Silicon Valley. Our own Jane Wells has just sat down with the inventors of the ATM, which I'm imagining Jane kind of works the opposite way to most ATMs. Yeah, well, and it, this one is small. It kind of looks like a, an old Apple computer. But this morning, Bart Chilton of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission said about Bitcoins, quote, they don't exist. And I didn't want to regulate them. I didn't want to put the government stamp of approval. That's just fine with the Harvey brothers, who will debut the Lamassu Bitcoin ATM tomorrow in Silicon Valley. All you need is a free app setting up a Bitcoin account and some cash. Well, you press the start button. There are three steps. You just show the machine your QR code. It got it. I have five dollars. Oh point oh four two nine Bitcoin is what you get for your five dollars. Wow. Yeah, not much. Josh and Zach Harvey say they're already getting some nibbles to buy the ATMs for five grand a piece. Unlike some competitors also racing to market, they won't license the ATMs, just sell them. It will be the buyer's responsibility for any potential future regulatory issues. This isn't really an ATM, you know. It's not a way for you to talk to your bank. You could think of it more of as, as a vending machine, in a way. You know, you put in dollar bills, you get a chocolate bar. Here you're putting in dollar bills, and you're getting a digital currency. Hmm, but with the Fed's freezing accounts of the largest Bitcoin exchange, Mt. Gox, for allegedly running an unlicensed money transfer operation, could demand vanish before the ATMs even come to market. I know that there are a lot of startups coming up right now that are doing everything by the book. So I do think that there will still be a lot of customers for this amazing technology that's, that's emerging that a lot of people are excited about. Well, everybody, of course, who's interested in Bitcoins wants to be outside the banking system off. And finally, you know, a lot of controversy, but these guys are putting the Bitcoins where their wallets are. I asked them how much of their net worth is tied up in the volatile currency. Most of it. All right. Well, you know. We might not have that much net worth, but what we have is... Uh... <laughs> I was thinking well, the same thing. Um, maybe they will have more. They plan to have the first ATMs ready by summer and say the obit on bitcoins has been written before, but they're not dead yet. Simon and David? Okay, Simon and David. You know, <clears throat> uh, uh, Louis BSAS in the chat room has uh, brought up this thread on Bitcoin Talk. It's 350 disastrously long pages of uh, people who are having issues with BitInstant. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I count myself among them. I, I think I lost about $300 through BitInstant. Uh, now, this is one of these things that's really difficult to know all the circumstances, especially on stuff like this. And I've talked about my troubles with BitInstant before uh, in earlier uh, Plan B episodes, one or two, actually, I think right. I covered that and the issues I had with the way they handled that stuff. I will say this now. Their new site handles a lot of this infrastructure stuff. I... I, I'm not yet convinced, although I haven't dug into it seriously. You'd think with a $300 burn, I would. But uh, it seems potentially like they were just really overwhelmed. Because uh, this was happening, the bulk of that was happening when Bitcoin, the value of Bitcoin was really skyrocketing. Yeah, so a bunch of people were trying to get in yeah, really yeah. quickly. Yeah, and, then, and support staff BitInstant was like the primary method. 30% uh, 30, 30 of uh, the Bitcoin yeah, that's a, that's a crazy purchase number. transactions were through BitInstant during that time. Um 
I, I don't know. I, so, you know, we're, we're, our coverage of Bit Instant here on this show is not necessarily an endorsement, uh, but they're a company I'm watching because I think both, you know, you and I, Drew, we feel like uh, as soon as these walls around getting money into Bitcoin drop, it's going to be nuts. Oh, yeah. Because the, the walls are, that's what's stopping everybody from getting in pretty much, right? Yeah. It's a huge, it, that's why I haven't bought Bitcoins with actual money in years. So, I mean, <laughs> there you go, right? Yeah. I think it's one of those things where things like Coinbase and BitInstant make it super easy. I mean, I can just go down to my 7-Eleven and I can buy Bitcoin with BitInstant. Yeah, the, the, day, the day that you can go online and just, you know, put your credit card in or whatever, or make an uh, Amazon purchase or something like that and get yeah. some Bitcoins, yeah. I'm there because, you know, I don't want to leave the house. So. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the final step. All right, Drew, are you just about ready to get a mirror on here? Yes. Yeah, okay. So up. I'm gonna I'm gonna call him up here on Skype in just a second. He's over in the UK, so uh, it's uh, it's past his bedtime. Actually, I don't think it is past his bedtime. But you know, I was just looking over Amir's uh, biography on uh, on uh, Wikipedia here, and it says that in 2009 and 2010 he made his living as a professional poker player. <laughs> okay, and then his experience in online gambling is actually what kind of led him to Bitcoin in the first place. So there you go. So we're about to talk to Amir, and this guy, uh, he's responsible for uh, a ton of the great work on the Electrum wallet, which is uh, my personal favorite uh, Bitcoin wallet. And he's involved right now in some infrastructure code that is going to change the landscape of Bitcoin applications and hosted Bitcoin solutions on servers. And as soon as we started talking to Amir, man, he just jumped right into it. So first we'll get into the technical stuff, and then we're going to zoom out and talk about some really interesting big picture stuff. Buckle up. Um, so from from project perspective, I made like the first uh, Bitcoin, the, the UK Bitcoin exchange, which we were like running for a long time, mm -hmm. and he's doing quite a bit of volume and was doing was successful and everything before we had to shut it down because the the regulatory agency here suddenly changed their tone and we were getting like a lot of pressure from banks. Yeah. Then then also uh, uh, I also like made the 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 last two Bitcoin conferences. Well, not the one that just passed, but I made the first one in in Prague called BitGroups, and I made the second one in London, which is Bitcoin 2012. And then also I made a bunch of other Bitcoin projects. I, and then also I was involved in this Bitcoinica scandal in some way, but that's a, a different, longer story. Mm. And but from a development perspective, uh, I've done I've done uh, I worked a, a bit on this client called uh, Electrum, which is this. I did I like rewrote the entire backend, and also spent a few months where I was studying uh, the UI and how people use Bitcoin. I redesigned that one, so it's the picture of the Bitcoin client that's there on Wikipedia for Bitcoin. Uh, and then also I've, I've developed the only full re-implementation of the Bitcoin standard. So that means like including block validation, scripting system, the networking, uh, the crypto stuff, you know, uh, yeah, the, tra the memory pool, the transaction memory pool, the, the protocol, uh, all of that, the serialization, you know, the elliptic curve. Uh, and that took, that's taken me like two years. And uh, I come from a background, which is, so I was working on video games uh, in, in these like projects where they had like millions of lines of code mm -hmm. with dozens of developers. So when I, when I come to software, I come from it very much in a perspective of maintainability and re readability. So I, I think a lot about uh, how can people keep using this software and because I've spent a lot of time working on game engines, I also uh, have a lot of experience in API design. So okay. I, came, I came to 
this Bitcoin dealer a few years ago. And I was like playing around with the source code. We made Python bindings for it. I started to make a bunch of different extensions and more functionality. We quickly started to get against roadblocks because of the design of this huge monolithic code base. So it's one big gigantic piece of code. Mm. And if you want to interact with it, you have to interact with it for predefined JSON RPC interface. So you can't really delve deep into the internals. As soon as you start going into the internals of Bitcoin and changing things about, other things start to break because it's not designed for that. So the, the way like, I've designed like LibBitcoin is that I'm really against uh, frameworks because I think a framework is, is a program which is already made and it has a bunch of stubs and you just go and fill in those stubs and that's it. It's very, I think it shoehorns you into one way of developing things. And I think that's really bad for system level software. So LibBitcoin is like a set of classes and utilities and functions. And there's all these different components that you can chain together to build, uh, uh, you know, bigger pieces sure. of well, so uh, let me, Bitcoin software. So LibBitcoin is something you've been working on for a long time. And at first yeah. it sounds like something that's pretty simple, but I think LibBitcoin is sort of it's it, it's going to enable a whole new generation of application developers who who maybe don't understand the fundamentals of Bitcoin, right? But they could use LibBitcoin yeah. to create a Bitcoin uh, client to yeah. uh, integrate Bitcoin functionalities into their application. Correct? Yeah, that's what I really want to really want to get. At. It's like a proper uh, Bitcoin ecosystem, which you you start at the top and you can like interact with bitcoin but then if you need something more or you're just interested to go down you can keep delving deeper and deeper and deeper and at each level there's concise like strict design of api and functionality uh, so lib bitcoin is the core but it's a core of a whole ecosystem of of infrastructure that i'm i'm really focused on so more specifically with LibBitcoin is, is purely C++ library. Mm. And it's, it's very much focused around asynchronous non-blocking. Uh, and also I said that it's a toolkit, it's not a framework. Uh, you'd never ever... So uh, I, one of the things I use is this concept of dependency injection. Now, if you have a... Cl let's say you have a class like... I don't know, a tiger class, and a tiger has a head, it has legs, and it has a heart and a, a tail. tail. <laughs> and yeah, and if the tiger class needs a head class or a leg class or a tail class, the usual way that a lot of uh, software uh, does this is, it, is the, the tiger class instantiates those objects it needs. But the way, what I use with LibBitcoin is instead you pass in the dependencies in the constructor. So, uh, all throughout uh, the the library, there are, there are many different things that depend on the blockchain. For instance, a transaction memory pool needs to use the blockchain to actually validate the transactions before it, including it into the memory pool. Do you so go well. You pass. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So you pass the blockchain into the constructor, the transaction pool. But there are different blockchain backends. There might be a level DB one, a Berkeley DB one. I used to have a Postgres SQL one, but that's no longer maintained. So that's dependency injection. That means you can swap in and out different components and build different combinations as you want. The the second thing is is uh, the way to I always the way to do asynchronous non blocking is that every function that you call returns immediately. So if I do a store or I do a fetch operation, that 
that returns immediately, but I pass to it a completion handler. So when that operation, uh, that operation goes off in there, it finishes, and once it's done, it calls your completion handler. This is called the proactor pattern. It's different from the reactor pattern. The reactor pattern is the you have your core that's running, uh, and when the operation is ready to be executed, it wakes up, it notifies the user, and the user initiates the operation and then returns. Hmm. And while the user is initiating that operation, it's blocking that thread of control. A proactor, by contrast, actually goes and initiates the operation in the in the core, and then calls the completion handler once it's finished. I've done a, I've done a talk on this. If you go to YouTube.com and you search for uh, Amir Taki async uh, Bitcoin, yep, we'll have and, it linked in the show notes. Okay, cool. And yeah, that would explain a lot of the concepts. Another one is a uh, is this concept of of uh, different thread pools. So each each different service, so let's say you have a blockchain service and a network service. Now, the blockchain service will be doing a lot of disk operations and you don't want that blocking uh, the, the, the network operations. But you also, so a, a classic way might be like to run it in more threads, right? Uh, but we already said that there's no blocking so you have these two thread contexts and you don't want to block and each is, other. Is this important for scale purposes, like on a server? So you Yes, can... scalability. Yeah, exactly. Like so so if I if I instantiate a service, so let's say I instantiate uh, a hands a handshake service, uh, the first argument to every constructor for every service in LibBitcoin is uh, the thread pool object. And that's where any operation that you call, like the fetch or the store or the send or whatever operation you're executing on the service will get sent as a packet of work to be done to that thread pool. And that thread pool will, when it's ready, wake up, take that piece of work to be done off the queue, execute it, and then call the completion handler. So that way, I can separate the different contexts to, along different lines of functionality. So the blockchain is doing disk operations. And you typically don't want to have more than one thread of control for a disk operations because then the, the head of the disk is moving around a lot. Yeah. Well, it's not so much true nowadays with, uh, SSDs. with SSDs. Yeah, but that's how it was in the past. And then the, the networking stuff, you want its own thread contact well, context. And maybe so, you have different networking operations, but you want them all to share the same thread pool. Yeah. So you put them all, you sh make them all share that thread pool, and and then maybe one for actually doing like your day-to-day -day services. So you can really think logically. And okay, so here's the here's the thing. So then suddenly you decide, okay, uh, I've got I've got this. I've got, for instance, the the uh, the hosts. So the thing that's actually storing all the list of Bitcoin node addresses yeah. and. I want to make that scale upwards somehow. Well, you can just throw more threads at it by increasing the number of threads in the thread pool that that one is, is well, using. Let me that ask you a question. Let me hit, yeah? let me, let's hit pause here so that we can zoom out for, because uh, that's pretty technical and that's cool and that's, that's extremely fascinating yeah. and sounds actually genius, to be honest with you. I want to ask you something, though, because I have a sense that part of the motivation behind LibBitcoin, although what you've talked, what you've touched on from a technical aspect is awesome, it's, it seems like what you're really trying to, and now I could be completely wrong, Amir, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're trying to open up the field to add more Bitcoin clients and sort of break the dominance of the Bitcoin QT mainline client. Is that Am I accurate in that statement? Is that part of your motivation yeah, here? Yeah, but, but also like... Uh 
I think right now there's a lot of focus on like uh, people like trying to make the blockchain work on the desktop. Right. And I think that's a mistake. Right. They're worried I about the size the, of the blockchain. Yeah, I think there needs to be more focus on the server and also developers. Well, this is the idea behind Electrum, they, right? The blockchain's hosted on a group yeah. of servers. Yeah. So also the the I think the developers like they need to have they need to have like proper tools as well to start building different kinds of Bitcoin applications. Like not just the the one thing that we all imagine, like a Bitcoin node, but other kinds of things like network statistical tools or 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 different kinds of utilities for the for the command line. If you look at there's a project I made called Subvert Vertex. Yeah. S U B V E R T X. We'll have a and link it's to just the show a Bitcoin notes. there's a Bitcoin talk forum thread. And it's it was only a prototype, but the whole whole point is is that you have a bunch of different tools that can be chained together to like do all kinds of different uh, Bitcoin functionality. For instance, there's a tool called Priv, and what that does is it generates private keys, allows you to sign data, hash digest using that uh, to verify hash digest or to find the Bitcoin address associated with that private key that you generated. There's another tool called MKTX, and what you can do is you can create uh, a signed transaction by piping in that private key and you can also broadcast the transaction to uh, the network. So what that means is you can chain those two commands together and you can create offline transactions. But then maybe you want to, if you ch decide that you wanted to use, I don't know, deterministic wallets, you can use a different tool and you can chain that with the MKTX and you've suddenly got deterministic wallets combined with uh, offline transactions. Or or, I don't know, maybe you want to play around with the blockchain so you could have some tools to manipulate, to import data from one blockchain database into a different format blockchain database by mm -hmm. loading different backends. Mm -hmm. And the whole point is, is like, empowers admins to create all different kinds, kinds of, like, to, to really, like, interact with Bitcoin on the core deep level without having to be a programmer. And, well, and, I and know that's what I mean about focusing about Bitcoin on the server space. And you've also, uh, when you talk you know, about the usability of Bitcoin and, and kind of taking a step back and looking at it, I know one of the things you're also interested in is sort of splitting out the the, the wallet aspect of Bitcoin into its own separate. Yeah. Right, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so uh, one of the things I, I've also made is, so using LibBitcoin, uh, I created, uh, so I, I have this full node, and the full node... If you go to libbitcoin.dime.org and you click on the tutorial and you scroll down to the, to the section called full node, you'll see there's a full node implementation. And that's only like 300 lines of code, not a lot of code. Mostly it's just creating all the different objects and chaining them together. Uh, really simple stuff. Yeah. But then, and so then I took that and I bolted onto it an Apache Thrift service. So Apache Thrift is, is like this library where you define some kind of interface, and then the client can connect to that server and execute methods remotely. So the whole point is we can expose all of the methods of LibBitcoin via this Apache Thrift server, so people can connect to this full Bitcoin node, and they can modify the node while it's running, execute whatever functions, really like play around with it, like fetch any piece of data that they need from the blockchain, and and then also that I, I put zero MQ so that you know new blocks that come in get published down the zero MQ channel and uh, unconfirmed but validated transactions 
also get hmm. sent down a different channel. And this is this is available. It's only I haven't documented it yet. I'm still uh, still getting to that stage, but it, it's working now, and I've been testing it. It's good. It's GitHub.com forward slash Genjix forward slash uh, query, and uh, and yeah, the whole point is is that. Even if you think you should store the blockchain locally on your server, yeah. store it on your server. But I think that the wallet, I think it's a mistake to be putting the wallet as part of the, the blockchain. The blockchain should be something that's user side. So, for instance, you have one blockchain daemon yeah. running on your computer, yeah. but then in user space, you have your wallet. So you can have lots of different users all interacting with this blockchain server on the same computer. And that's good for security purposes. Sure. It means that this valuable piece of data, your wallet, is being sandboxed off exactly. away from this daemon. And you can have many different, uh, you know, many different user accounts all with different levels of permissions, you know, using proper Linux utilities to, to set policies or whatever. And that really integrates much better with the Unix environment and the philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another, another thing about Bitcoin, so then, and, and this is all in Python, this query layer. So, so it's, so I said like, so Bitcoin, so there's this principle called keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> but yeah. that really, that, but that principle, it doesn't, it, it depends what you mean by simple. So there's, in software development, there is, you know, simple from an implementation perspective, sure. but that means comp- maybe not so simple from the person who's using that implementation. Uh, but then there's also simple from a user perspective, but the implementation is doing a lot underneath to make it simple on top. And I think with system level software, it should be implementation simple, but then application software should be user simple. And the way that this is why, so the way you do this is you have your backend and the application software is simply providing a layer on top of that backend to add that simplicity. Uh, it's, a, it's the way the software should be designed, I think. So yeah, I agree. Got, so I, I, said that, I said I've got this libbitcoin, mm-hmm. and that is, I try to keep the implementation as simple as possible. I don't provide like methods that duplicate functionality. How's the response been to Libbitcoin? I, I noticed some traction with the Debian project. Have you seen other? Have you seen other people showing interest in Libbitcoin? Um, yeah, like uh, I, I today like posted on the Reddit, and everyone was saying, "Let me read some of the comments." One sec. Oh yeah, on the Bitcoin subreddit. <laughs> yeah, the Bitcoin subreddit, and yeah. people were like saying, uh, "You know, nice work, good on you. Wow, I love good C plus plus, awesome. You know." Why are you not being paid for this? Well, so Webby Wizard you know, in our IRC this, chat room, Amir, asks a very good question. Thank you for this beautiful I under- piece of code. I yeah. understand that, uh, I mean, you you live in uh, what I think most people would consider pot- potentially difficult arrangements. You have really committed yourself to this. Uh, you're not, as far as I know, making very any, any money necessarily off this stuff. Why, why are you doing it? Uh, I've been working in open source for over 10 years. And when I like look at these tools, like the internet, I see the I see this like amazing like amazing tool that's like overthrown totalitarian regimes or gets grassroots candidates elected, like proper tool that changed the social landscape of society. And technology is a really powerful thing. And like when you have such an amazing skill 
Uh, if you waste it, like just coding proprietary apps that go into some corporate black hole, you're an idiot. Because the people that, that made the internet, they, Im- they embedded their ethics and their morals. And that's why it's such powerful stuff. And if you have this, you, it's like your responsibility if you have this skill to carry on their torch, you know, to carry on their legacy. Uh, like I would actually feel bad, like if I woke up like 10 years later and it's like, what have I done with my life? I just wasted it like doing nothing and like bitcoin for me is really interesting piece of software i love it i think it's great it has has the potential to change lives yeah it's really interesting application of all these different concepts Mm -hmm. like one of the most interesting things i've seen in years like really and i think i think the you know you know the the personal computing revolution of the 70s there was a lot of cool projects uh, a lot of pioneers like one guy was lee felgenstein and he made community memory and he really like a lot of the concepts that he made are stuff that is really foundational cornerstone of personal computing and even the inter- internet and networking today and the people in that time though they weren't vocal enough and they that movement got hijacked really by by corporations mm-hmm. and and big money and the whole point with Bitcoin is, like, I'm hoping it's one of these technologies where it's it's so liberating, and the people behind it who are building it, like, really like feeling it, that it won't it won't be drowned out by people who want to hijack and co-opt Bitcoin I, I hope for their right. non-political. Like, I don't I don't sell Bitcoin on saying oh, it's got lower transaction fees. Or that it's, right. it's better for corporations. I'm saying it's like it's. A, I'm I'm not hiding the fact that it's like a tool to avoid paying taxes. Well, to, you've gotten some heat for that. I've seen threads in Bitcoin talk forum where people wish you would not say those kinds of things. But you're just being honest the way I see it. Yeah, fuck them. I'm not hiding like the truth. Right. That's what this is. What Bitcoin is made from. If anyone tries to cover that up, all you need to do is look in the Genesis block where Satoshi even wrote himself the. This is a tool to undermine power from central banks. It's like it's so really disgusting where, where all around the world people are being abused by a scammy financial system that is ripping people off, and then we have a tool to change it. And what you think that we we should become part? Of, we should allow this amazing tool to become co-opted right. and corrupted no right. way come on and part of lying and covering up about these things has, has been part of the problem now amir i've only got a little bit left on the skype account but there's a couple of things i want to ask you that i want to give you a chance to throw uh, in the last few things about- uh i know yeah. i know and you've got you've got a lot coming up I, one yeah. thing while we're still on this track of 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 you know uh, co-opting and things like that what do you think currently is the biggest threat to bitcoin or just cryptocurrencies in in general that we kind of just need to be more aware about something people need to be talking more about do you have are you do you have any fears of anything like that right now uh wait there's one guy who says it's strange we praise the corporate attention bitcoin gets and hate it at the same time but it's like uh i'm not i'm not hating on people who want to like build infrastructure or services i think it's great what i what i'm what is worrying is like if if Bitcoin as a tool, if it because there are, there are a number of things that technology is not something you just put out there and it's done. It's a constant struggle to keep it free and open. The the internet started off as a project, a very small project in universities around the world, and built off of TCP/IP. But there were people who've who've been struggling continuously to keep it free and to its ideals. That's that's what I mean. You know, I 
and anybody that wants to participate in Bitcoin has to respect its agenda and its power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so any threats that you are worried about? Are you worried about government shutting things down? Or are you worried about uh, um, uh, client dominance? I hope the government bans Bitcoin, to be honest, <laughs> because then it would go in the underground economy. Yeah. Okay, the threat that I see is uh, Bitcoin uh, just becomes another, another tool, like another payments option like everything else. Right. The, it's, it's built too much in the white market that we end up with a situation where all of the merchants are regulated and they start doing KYC and like logging who, who's using this Bitcoin address and that Bitcoin address. The, I'm also worried the the standard, if it's controlled too much by one party, like Microsoft, who controlled like every other standard when they had a monopoly on the industry, mm-hmm. that it gets too much thrown into it because one of the bulwarks against Change, bad changes to Bitcoin right now is that it's open source, and that's great. But we also have to watch out for the deeper issues. And the way to properly develop a standard is to have many different special interests group, special interest groups who are at odds with each other but have to mutually collaborate, collaborate mm-hmm. to develop the best software. And what's happening right now with Bitcoin is there is one implementation, and everything is being thrown into this Bitcoin implementation. People are like, oh, I want this feature. And people are like, let's add it. But what about, this, what about the other guys in the future who want to come and implement Bitcoin from scratch? We're going to end up with a massive standard that's going to be thousands and thousands of pages long. And it, you wouldn't be able to develop this, the Bitcoin, a Bitcoin implementation without a huge initial investment. And then Bitcoin right now is pretty simple code. It's like 15,000 lines of code. If you're one guy working for two years, talented, like a good programmer, then you can, you can do it, you know? But what, what about the stage where you can't do it because it's such a massive, complex standard with all these different things, with the kitchen sink and everything? That's something we have to guard against. And also just for the health and integrity of the network, you need a diversity of implementations because, uh, you know, inbreeding, one of the risks against, with inbreeding is that when all the genetic code is the same, that one virus can come and exploit some quirk of, bio, of that organism's biology to quickly proliferate and ravage a population. But if the population is genetically diverse, it becomes a lot more difficult to exploit some quirk in the whole population. Do you see, and he, and do you even, see other even, altcoins serving that role? No, I don't mean altcoins. Yeah. I mean implementation. You mean, yeah, right. But know. Like, you know, on the web, we have Firefox, Chrome, right. uh, Safari, all the different web browsers. Uh, and when when they're competing together, if there is a if there is a fault found, for instance, tomorrow in Safari, it wouldn't take down the web. Right. That's what I mean. But if yeah. there is a fault found tomorrow in Bitcoin D, that would take down the Bitcoin network. Yeah, yeah. Especially, especially even, you mean you are specifically cool. referring to Bitcoin D, which is run on all of the pools and the servers that are involved yeah. with Bitcoin transactions. Exactly. That's a that's a danger. Like even this hundred blockchain fork wouldn't have happened if we had a diversity of implementations. You know. Yeah. And I've, I've been like doing this stuff for a long time and like really sh- stressing on it, but I, it's sometimes difficult because this is a deep down issue. It's not such a headline grabbing thing. It's not something that people really pay attention to unless they're a developer. And, right. and when I'm talking about C++ and I'm talking about system level software, that's, an e- that's a niche part of a niche group yes. already. Yes. Right? So, yeah. Yeah. But, it's hard but to get the like, message about. I have a whole idea for like infrastructure I, I, I want to create and I'm trying to work on it, but it's just, 
yeah, manpower is, is <laughs> my yeah. time is limited. And I'm also doing that unsystem.net. So tell conference. us about this. Huh? Tell us about unsystem I, in, in Vienna, right? Oh, uh, yeah, it's cool. We have a, so I have this venue, which is normally like for, for 20,000 people. And uh, I'm going to like fill it for a weekend. It's right next to the International Atomic Energy Agency and right next to the United Nations. And I'm going to fill it for a weekend with all kinds of like hackers, anarchists, squatters, and other kinds of subversives. Like we have really cool people there if, if you go. Uh, and it's like going into the den of the dragon while the dragon's sleeping, <laughs> taking a piss quietly in the corner, and then leaving. <laughs> like a statement. But also, like I want to, sh I want to show Bitcoin. I think the problem with Bitcoin right now is that like a lot of presentation is like is very much focused around this is what Bitcoin is, blah, 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 facts, info. I, we need to show Bitcoin as a cultural movement. You know, there's all these things emerging now, like Occupy, the Anonymous, you know, the 3D printing. This is the start of a new culture. There, this is something new emerging out of that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's still not defined what it is. It's still growing, mm -hmm. but and it's Bitcoin worldwide. is a big piece of that. Yeah. And, and we need to get these people, like all these people who are into this stuff, like bring them in the place like these young kids and show them like the real stuff that's happening like the real things underneath show them the real developments that and before and it's really important young people because these are the people who haven't yet been who, who aren't yet you know in a job haven't yet got a family they're more willing to explore and jump off the deep end you know they're more willing to take risks you know, and that's really powerful thing for the movement as a whole. Well, in the timing, and I mean, I just heard a, Bitcoin. I just heard a statistic. There's 300 million uh, uh, young adults unemployed around the world, and there's a system now that has sort of disenfranchised a huge, a huge, yeah. massive population. And there is a there is sort of a call for something like this right now. So it's come at a right time. Yeah, and I think open source is like one of the most important things to the society that's happened in ages like people don't realize how how amazing this is you have people all around the world professional people writing this stuff like giving it out there for free anyone can take it make changes to it and release those for free and it's billions of dollars worth of of code that's being created and it's yeah. it's revolutionized the computer industry a lot of android phones and linux based mm -hmm. apple systems are based off open source this is like this is real. This is not something fake. And people talk about post scarcity ex economy and the future. But we have one here now working, the open source movement, open source software. It's so important. I really wish people would like pay more attention to it. When I got into this stuff when I was sixteen, I was constantly saying to myself, Wow, this is incredible. Why why is the media not talking about it? Why right. is it not on Hollywood all the time, constantly? It's the most amazing thing ever. At least now like I think the the press and stuff is starting to pay more attention. Bitcoin is really cool. Yeah. It's open source. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I, I really that's why one thing I like about Bitcoin too, open source yeah. software. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. So I've only got a couple of minutes left on the Skype before it's gonna probably automate. Cool. I don't so know I what happens. About the other lip Bitcoin things then yes. as well. Let's do it. Yeah, so I was talking about having this full node which you can interact with the blockchain. And you can also like make an adapter for that, so that Electrum, so that it translates mm. uh, the queries that you make against that to the ones that Electrum clients use. So now you can just bolt on Electrum clients as well. So that's pretty cool. And, and wow. then, and then the so I was talking about like 
the C++ API being uh, being like really basic, like as in like the you know like when you use like X11 programming, it's it's really sometimes difficult to use because you got it doesn't try and abstract any of the functionality that it provides. But then in the Python library, Python. Uh, so you know, like when I've got this this server running and you're interacting with it, the the way the client side part of that is is a Python library, and that's like really like making it simple to use. So you can do like uh, blockchain dot blocks and then the block number, and then you could do dot outputs. You know, you can check the spend of an output. Oh. You can find the address associated with an output, like. <laughs> Using you know like the Django or SQL Alchemy ORM, it's like using that kind of syntax. Yeah. That you can like really like navigate the blockchain. You know. So people that, people are going to build all kinds of data analytics tools around that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's really nice. I like this kind of yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, and then and then sites like blockchain.info will owe <laughs> their ability to show awesome stats to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just talking with the guy today and. Yeah, we were. He was saying, "Oh, I need some small things like this," and and I was saying, "Oh, yeah, I can make use of API and tools." And so we collaborate, maybe collaborate in that way. But let's see. And uh, and then also, Debian has said that they will package it, which would be really nice. It would be much easier to deploy this software. Yeah, that's out there. awesome. And I've been working a lot on the documentation because I've been like mostly programming it for all this time, but. Yeah. Now I'm actually gonna. Now I'm actually focusing on the documentation. You've actually been working. Actually, you've been working on it for about two years, LibBitcoin. So it's yeah. It's in a pretty good state. It's just now it needs the doc so that way people can wrap their brain around it. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. awesome. Well, Amir, uh, I, I would love to have a chance to chat with you down the road just to catch up and see where things are at, and how it's going. Cool stuff. I know it's late where you're at, so I appreciate you staying up late to come on the show with us. I'm. I'm up. This is my midday. Of course. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, very good, sir. Thank you very much. And uh, right. uh, we'll have links to everything you mentioned uh, in our show notes. So if you if you want to uh, send people to jupiterbroadcasting.com, look for Plan B Episode 7, and we'll have a section with all your links in there. People can go find uh, uh, his GitHub where he has uh, LibBitcoin and uh, also uh, links to uh, all the other things he mentioned as well as that YouTube talk. So, Amir, thanks very much right, for coming cool on the stuff. show. Now, of course, you can always send your questions into Plan B at jupiterbroadcasting.com or hit our contact link at the top of our website. Or start a thread in our subreddit over at planbshow.reddit.com. And Drew and I get a lot of questions throughout the week, and sometimes we don't get a chance to answer all of them, but we kind of feel like every now and then there's some basics we should cover just to help people who are listening to the show get their feet, kind of get things started. So Drew, our first email this week comes in from Mitchell, and he says, Hi, Chris and Drew. I've recently started mining bitcoins, and the wallet I'm currently using is Electrum. Next to every transaction is a tick to say the transaction has been confirmed. If you hover your mouse over the tick, it shows you how many confirmations the transaction had. On one transaction for 0 .01, .01, no, I'm kidding, bitcoins, there are 365 confirmations. And for another transaction, there are 230 confirmations for a transaction of only 0 0.23 bitcoins. Is there any reason that there were more confirmations for a cheaper transactions? And postscript, if I'm building and starting mining a rig for mining litecoins was a good graphics card for under a hundred bucks. Thanks guys. Love your initiative to do a podcast on bitcoins. Keep up the good work and uh, any donations appreciated for his Bitcoin. <laughs> I like that. He's putting a plea out there. Well, it's on the screen. People can grab it. Drew, what do you think about, uh, so Mitchell's got a couple questions here. He's got one question about uh, different confirmation amounts, even for a cheaper uh, transaction. He's got a question about a video card. What do you think? 
mean, about the confirmations, that's something that I don't really know. I've been scouring the, the Bitcoin wiki, and I assume that um, at least the transaction fees are equal between uh, the, the transactions of those differing amounts, and that uh, he made them at the same time, neither of which was specified, but I assume mm. that to be the case. That could be a key difference, though, if you sent them from oh, different yeah. clients or had, had different uh, fee settings. But, I mean, I, I've seen, uh, there's something on the Bitcoin Reddit, too, where somebody had uh, sent a transaction, but uh, it hadn't been getting uh, many, if at all, conf- or it hasn't been getting any confirmations because yeah. um, uh, uh, transactions that the funds are based upon for them being at your address have yet to be confirmed or something like that. So maybe that has something to do with it, past confirmations. I'm not really sure. So if somebody has a good answer, because uh, I haven't found one, uh, send us an email. Yeah, or even better, if they would if they would be so kind, call us, one three fifty two fifty eight plan b and leave us a voicemail. We also have that number in the show notes. I wonder if... Uh, yeah, you know, because I've I've always once I go beyond three or four confirmations, I pre- I pretty much just stop checking. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, so uh, the you know like uh, like Lewis is saying in the chat room, you know, the older a transaction is, the more time it has been on the network, so therefore the more time it has been confirmed by the miners, so it can have more confirmations just if it is an older transaction. Right. Yeah, so the funds from too. his yeah. transaction are yeah. older. So he, I'm not sure if he spent them in what order, but yeah, I have I have seen that where there's sometimes just you know different transaction amounts but as long as you've got a couple you're fine that's what i say that's what bit instance says at least oh, all right yeah. uh, next email comes in from eugene he says hey guys you've probably gotten a billion emails like this today but just in case you didn't please do the bitcoin community a favor and don't call <laughs> it terrorist money anymore well so i don't really trust bitcoin any more than usd there are too many variables that come into play to make that to make it a safe alternative to the usd Viruses, security breaches, and hardware failures can all leave you penniless. I don't think the powers that be will allow us to use Bitcoin. They want us to use their money. Money that can either print more of or enter a few digits in the right database, spreadsheet, and create them. This is really a big bummer because I was hoping that Bitcoin would take off and gain widespread adoption. Oh well, I suppose it's in the near future Mt. Gox is going to get a different service to transfer their money in and out. It seems like, I mean, Bitcoin to me is getting a lot of traction and a lot of attention. So I don't yeah, know about I'd that say last it's never part. been more traction or, or, or more yeah, attention I, ever. That's why I was kind of confused because it's, it, what it sure seems talking? to me that, I mean, at least the media coverage, I mean, it's going crazy in the last few months at least. So. I think, I think, but I mean, well, you know what it is, man, is I think this, uh, I think this Mt. Gox situation has people down. So, uh, you know, for people who are maybe, caught last week's episode and maybe haven't followed the news in the meantime when last week's episode went on the air it was breaking that something was going on between dhs and mount gox we didn't quite know what because there hadn't been any articles written on it yet this was all just what we were hearing from our audience what we were seeing in forum posts and we knew something was up and we thought well we're gonna see a big crash from this because at the time at the time it sounded like it was a very significant like Mt. Gox, you know, was getting was getting attacked by the DHS. It turned <laughs> out to be not. It turned out to be not quite so dramatic. But I actually think it's a bigger deal than the overall Bitcoin community has quite realized. It's once again Mt. Gox putting a stain on the Bitcoin community by their utter and complete incompetence to to do even the most basic functions of their business correct. And this comes down on the shoulders of the CEO of Mt. Gox, Mark Carpolis, or however you say his last name, who's cited 
in the documents that the United States government is going after them with by name because of the shell corporation that he set up, uh, Mutum Sigum LLC, whatever it was, that was an American shell subsidiary that they had. And they what they essentially tried to do was break out the exchange side of their business and the money payments side of their business, thinking, well, look at us. We're clever. We've split it. The United States government will never figure it out. And so we <laughs> yeah. don't have to say this money is being used for an exchange. So we're not going to fill that stuff out on the form because this is just a shell company. It's our money company. They'll never figure it out. And you know what? They figured it out. And the budgets now, are going crazy. I mean, they got plenty of money to look to look into this, and it's a mm-hmm. huge threat to the infrastructure, or you know, to the banking system. So the government's uh, very concerned with anything that threats the bank or a threat for bank, the banking system as a whole. And the immediate effect has been payments via and 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 withdrawals via Douala are shut down. And so the Bitcoin community's been like, yeah, okay, you know, no bigs, no bigs. Yeah, Although the, the, the Eugene seems is, to be Eugene seems to be quite upset about it. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely turned him around. But I mean, like, because I expected to see a big crash, but I mean, the, the price was pretty, Did it It went a little weird, but I mean, yeah, the, I, the last couple of things that we've seen, like all the DDoSs recently and uh, the, these legal issues and regulatory, uh, regulatory issues, I mean, we're not seeing yeah, you know, a real crisis. We're not really seeing people panic. So. I think enthusiasm, enthusi- okay, first of all, we keep hearing stories about VC funding. And then you combine that with the Bitcoin conference that happened where there was a lot of, I mean, the price just started going up over the weekend. I mean, you know what I mean right there? That's a sign. Uh, But I think the big problem is, is the DHS is going after Mark. So what happens when you cut the head off of Mt. Gox? Does Mt. Gox just continue on just fine? Do they, or do they spin, do they spiral out of control? What happens when you cut the head off? Because they are going for the head of Mt. Gox. I believe the DHS wants to make an example out of Mark. They would. I, I would definitely think that they would like to do that very much. And I think once this story starts to play out, I wouldn't be surprised if then we start to see an impact in the price of the market. Because right now they're still responsible for eighty percent of the transactions and or of the trades. And we don't have anything on the horizon right now to fix it to replace it. There's no. I mean, yes, there's plenty of other exchanges, and there's. We just got an email from somebody who's working on one that looks pretty straightforward right now. Uh, but. They none of them even compare in volume, and and secondarily, they don't have the trust, and they're all centralized as well. So they suffer from some of the same systematic systemic problems that Mt. Gox suffers from. Yeah, and also um, uh, Canada, their whatever their uh, their their regulatory agency that that would that you know has the same jurisdiction that the DHS has in the U.S. here, um, explicitly stated that they don't regard uh, Bitcoin exchanges as money transmitters. So that, that's that's some recent news. Yeah. So that you might see some, you know, some of these exchanges at least to some degree, or maybe you know, new ones pop up. Because I mean, what, what you need with right with the regulation stuff is to be very very clear about how things are. And you know, the 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 U.S. thing, the regulatory thing with I forgot what the uh, agency was, not the DHS, but this was before. But uh, you know, they had come out and said that uh, you know, Bitcoin, it, they're only going to regulate the money transmitters themselves. But even the Canadian the Canadians are not even saying that at all. You know, so we might see some competition. Good. From that part of the world. Good. Good. Help us out. Good. And then you have then you have folks like Trade Hill and BitInstant who appear to be trying to go uh, the absolute legitimate route. The part where Mark really is screwed is there's even Bitcoin talk threads where Mark says, we might need to get licenses in every state in order to do what we're doing. <laughs> you know. Oh, 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 slap your knee. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. And, and then you, so then you also wonder... How does this play into that whole? Um, was it Coin Lab that it was? Was it Mount? Remember the lawsuit between Mount Gox and I, yeah, I know. I know Ben mentioned Coin Lab was a VC. I, I, I thought it was. Uh, anyways, I wonder if that was also them trying to avoid this problem. 
because Mt. Gox knew that their funding solutions for the United States were built on a house of cards. Hey. And so they knew they needed to maybe partner oh. with an American company. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I wonder, I wonder if they had done that. I wonder if they had gone through with that and they had transferred everybody's funds. And it was an if it was if it was an American institution, they the DHS would have had even more leverage over them. Oh yeah, that that, that would have been a kind of freaky thing if, if Gox was actually you know hosted out of here because they, they're pretty trigger happy about taking down sites. <laughs> yeah, it was Coin Lab. It is it was Coin Lab that is suing Mt. Gox for seventy five mil because they were supposed to take over all of Mt. Gox's American business. Now remember, I remember on this very show, I was like, why is Mt. Why Gox is in the position of power, giving all of this business to somebody else? I think this was why. Yeah, a week or two ago, we were talking about that. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a great point. Yeah. This has to be why, because, I mean, they're on pretty shaky ground. I, mean, yeah. it, I guess it was just a matter of time. And they maybe knew it. I mean, of course they knew it. Mark knew it, because Mark signed the papers himself. He yeah. knew he lied. He knew he was kind of getting away on a technicality. That's what it was. It was a technicality. Yeah, and the language of it was pretty explicit. You and just like, they were too, you know, even 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 at the numbers they were doing— it was just still too too little for for them to care about, for the government to care about. But now they're starting to take another look at it, which maybe tells you, you know, a little insight into how they feel about Bitcoin right now. It sure seems like they were they were unnecessarily complacent given their position that they had gained, you know, early in the the evolution of the Bitcoin. Has economy. that not seemed like the case every time you found something about Mt. Gox out? Like when we discovered that uh, when they were having the horrible leg problems, that their engine could only do seven <laughs> transactions at a time. And it's like, wait a minute, you guys knew about this limitation? Well, yeah. Yeah, we were totally just going to build the new engine, but it's taken super long time. Well, guess what? You know, that rooster came home to roost or whatever. What is that saying? That that tornado came home to... No, I, I shouldn't make a tornado <laughs> joke. Uh, but you, you get, like, every time you hear about a big Mt. Gox controversy, and when you boil it down, it's like, oh, so this was kind of incompetence. Yeah, there's a, there seems to be a lot of that going around. So <laughs> This is why Come I say they are a stain on the community. They're a stain on, our, on Bitcoin's legitimacy because they are such a bunch of cock-ups themselves they may they are an embarrassment and people uh, people when when i watch like uh uh financial financial you know there's podcasts that some financial advisors do where they get on and they just talk money stuff and when bitcoin comes up they laugh about mount gox and they laugh that the majority of our trades like it's funny and they refer to it as you know the magic the gathering exchange that is run by magical tucks <laughs> and they think it's really funny like it's it's like a laughable it a, thing they look the at these face. kids with their toys and it is kind of the face of Bitcoin because, I mean, there is never a discussion, at least I don't think in the mainstream media, where a price, the price is the Mt. Gox price. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's not the price of being yeah. Bitcoin in and of itself. It's their price. Right. And, you know, this goes back to something that Max Kaiser got super flamed for because it sounded like he was missing some of the fundamentals of Bitcoin, whereas he was saying the price should be set by the Bitcoin Foundation. Now, how would that ever actually be accomplished? I don't know. But we've essentially done it with Mt. Gox, so maybe it could be done with the Bitcoin Foundation. I think the problem, the blowback, if you recall, was that that would require some centralization and people sort of erupted and, and you know, sort of Ooh, going, yeah. that ain't gonna happen. going against the very nature of Bitcoin. But... I think maybe his overall point was that we need to take it out of the hands of the kids. Yeah, I mean, he, he has a point there for having the fear of keeping it at least over there. But, I mean, the cool thing about all this competition and stuff is we're going to, we're going to, hopefully we'll see Mt. Gox marginalized. Right, uh, right. And, you know. Um, and have a, like a wider distribution, multiple points of failure, more stuff like that. So stuff isn't, you know, so volatile. Stuff isn't so affected by any of these crazy instances of, of uh, multiple, multiple cases of this incompetency. If I could just like have my way chris's way would be 
some, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the works right now. Buttercoin is an open source exchange, but it's centralized again. But there's a lot of stuff in the works right now. I would love to be at the point where we have a really, you know, solid, getting super close. Maybe people are already kind of using it to some high volume level decentralized exchange system that's been developed. Something that is designed for Bitcoin. I'm not talking about Ripple. I'm talking about something that's, I know Ripple supports Bitcoin. I'm talking about something that's designed specifically for the Bitcoin network, uses the Bitcoin network. I wish it was already in place. And then I wish Mt. Gox would implode because I think we would have a very smooth switch over. But right now, right now, while Bitcoin is doing awesome and people are excited, if Mt. Gox completely blows up, because of something going down with Mark or whatever. And I know that's totally worst case scenario, but if it happens, we are not, there's nothing really in the place to fill that void that won't completely collapse under traffic. True. Yep. And doesn't really suffer from potentially the same issues at this point. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, So we'll see what happens. Hopefully nothing. Hopefully the Mt. Gox situation isn't a big deal. And the fact that they're in Tokyo, hopefully will insulate them a little bit and draw things out and give us time. And maybe that'll be the uh, far under developers' arses to get this problem solved. <laughs> All right, next email. Thanks, uh, Eugene. Good email. Next email comes in from Nigel. Hey, guys. Found a cool site, dustcoin.com, which compares lots of crypto coin informations. It's amazing how many cryptocurrencies there are now. Love the show. Keep up the great work. So this dustcoin is really cool. It's simple. You, and Did you see it? Did you take it? Yeah, yeah. Work? I checked it out. Yeah, I'm going to go there right now. So it's dustcoin.com. And I thought he meant like just loose Bitcoin change, but no, it's... It's like all the different cryptocurrencies. Get ready to take a drink, everybody. Litecoin, Namecoin, <laughs> PeePeeCoin, FeatherCoin, NovaCoin, uh, FireCoin, my, uh, everything. Everything. Barbecue coins on here. Even. China coin. Oh, look at that. <clears throat> and um, it works on the smart device as well. I've tried it. And you can plug in different hash rates and power stuff and do calculations. It's pretty cool. It's dustcoin.com. So thanks, Nigel, for sending that in to us. All right, Mr. Drew, our next email comes in from Mark. He says, hi, Chris and Drew. Well, hi, Mark. Thanks for emailing us. Uh, I've been hearing a lot of conversations between people and the word Bitcoin keeps grabbing my attention. The conversations are about Scotland using cryptocurrency when we get independence. To me and a few Bitcoin users I know think this sounds interesting. I can't help feel that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are mature enough to get to act as a currency for an entire country, especially when people would want to come in and to affect it before 8, 9, in my opinion, that sounds like an extremely unrealistic target. I love the show, and I feel a lot more informed about Bitcoin. And I do hope that cryptocurrency becomes our default currency in time, and I hope people give enough time to mature. I think he typoed. I think he meant to say, I can't help but feel that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are not mature enough to act as a currency for an uh, entire yeah. country. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, I would agree with Mark. In fact, I... Through the life of the show, Drew, I've bounced back and forth if we should ever even consider Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies used outside the net, outside off the internet, offline. I first, well, at first I kind of thought, you know, it's just not what they're made for. This just doesn't make any sense. And then after Cashmere Hill did it, and uh, I started thinking about it a little more, I was like, actually, and, and you know, Gift kind of made it a little more real. The Gift app kind of made oh, it a little yeah. more real. And I thought, actually, you know, it does actually work pretty pretty damn good. In physical, as long as you have internet connectivity. Right. But, you know, as Ron Paul says, if I can't put a few coins in my pocket, I don't know if I want it as my in-person currency. Yeah, yeah. he kind of has a point. But, I mean, the the reason I chose this one is I I just don't, I I don't understand why we, why a a country has to have a, a, a single currency. Like, 
I, I get, you know, the U.S. has a dollar and all that, and you know, the, all these countries have their own individual currencies for their country. But I just don't, I don't see a reason to not have the currency competition. Because what, what if, what if there's something that comes out that's better than Bitcoin? What if there's something? Oh, that, oh so that, you that mean you don't see why a currency, yet? why a country can't have multiple currencies? Yeah, I, 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 I'm a, I like the idea of of currency competition. Because you don't have to have anything, you know, you don't have the government deem something to be unnecessary for use. Like, I mean, if you go to pay your taxes at the end of the year, you know, they give you a couple options. And you they are a libertarian. I'll tell <laughs> you what, uh, there's no government in the world that is probably actually likes the idea. Even the governments like ours that say in principle they think it's a good idea, I don't think actually like it. Because it is a huge source of control for the economy, for the populace, for business. I mean, you can't yeah. give that up. That's definitely. rude access, they, they man. Do not, yeah, definitely do, definitely do not want to give that up at all. But, I mean, I, I think it, it, Bitcoin is at least making, increasing the level of competition and getting, getting people, a lot of people to think about their currencies relative to it, you know. And, and I, I, it's just odd that, that uh, we, want, we want to force, well, not, he wasn't implying force, but, you know, countries want to uh, enforce the rules where you have to use this currency or that currency. Then they can do whatever they want with the supply and all that crap. But yeah. I, I, like, I like competition in all realms. I like, you know, you can buy multiple phones, you can buy different types of computers. Yeah. The competition has really helped you know, right. spur society. Just a like, if you look at the 1700s to now, the level of competition, like the, the emergence of competition and private property and all that stuff. And, and here we are with, with this amazing technology. I mean, if we just extend um, competition in every realm uh, possible, at least, especially with currencies, I think we'll see a great deal of benefit. People well, will choose the best thing. Uh, at first, I thought you were saying you don't understand why each country needs to have their own individual currency. Why can't we all just have one currency? And I thought, oh, you know, no. you're crazy, but you're not too crazy when it comes to the Internet. And see, this is why I always thought Bitcoin only made sense online, because the internet sort of screams for a common payment system and something that overcomes fundamentally an aspect of the internet is two people can be doing a transaction have no idea if they can trust each other but but the crypto based currencies solve that problem right i know i've got my payment from you i've got that unique number from you and i have it now it's mine you've paid me it doesn't matter if you are who you say you are. I've got those numbers in my wallet now. And the internet desperately needs something like that that, that almost turns money into TCP IP type stuff where it's it can be plumbing for the internet. It's it's money plumbing for the internet. Yeah, it's so, got its own its own hose through yeah, its own pipe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The internet. And I've and that's why I always thought, you know, that's really its purpose. And and then when I go to my local store, I'm going to pay in cash, I'm going to pay in my government controlled currency and We'll just have two worlds. We'll have the government world that in, in, in the real world where everything is controlled. And then we'll have the Internet world where we have Silk Road and we have uh, services online that you can buy stuff in Bitcoin, like the BitcoinStore.com and, and Coinbase and all these different, you know, we'll have all that stuff. Right. And they'll just the two things shall never, never meet. And, and now that I think about it, that is that is really silly because there's there's this inherent benefit to be able to buy bitcoins here in washington state of the united states of america get on a plane fly down to australia and buy a candy bar with bitcoin you know you're making borders irrelevant you're yeah, making exactly just like they're irrelevant the internet on the does. internet it makes every, all the stuff irrelevant but it doesn't necessarily mean they can't also have a local currency there i mean technology mm. solves that problem i mean it, yeah back when it was old hand crank tills and he had punched in the certain code and it opened up the till to ching it made sense why you wouldn't ha want to have a bunch of different currencies but now that the majority of point of sale devices are basically computers or ipads they can handle multiple types of currencies. It doesn't matter. It, the computers do the math. The computers do the conversion. Use whatever you want. 
Exactly. More choice for you to choose what, however you want to conduct your life. I think if Bitcoin got to the point where it was like as common as, as a form of payment as MasterCard or Visa, that would be a fundamental win for Bitcoin. And it could achieve that without having to disrupt or displace the U.S. dollar or, or the euro or anything like that. Yep. I think you could still uh, have yeah. that. You could still achieve that. Yep, competition with, I mean, stuff that I don't like. I don't like, you know, the whole uh, Federal Reserve system and, and, you know, U.S. monetary policy. But, I mean, you got to use it. It's not, you know, and you got Bitcoins over here, you got dollars over here. They both serve their own needs. The competition is good. Yeah, it really is because the current system is pretty much as rigged against the common person as possible when it comes to the monetary system. The way the banks are, the way the banks are designed, everything like that is, I mean, they're legalized criminals. They are, they literally get away with drug trafficking and embezzlement and they get slapped on the wrist and then, and then they get, uh, they get to print money at nearly absolutely zero interest because the central banks are, um, controlled Dicks. by a small, <laughs> no, they're controlled by a, a, a small group. And yeah, they don't yeah. necessarily have the interests of the big group in mind. And uh, Bitcoin is sort of an opportunity for the people. It's the people's currency. And as ridiculous and as much as hyperbole as that sounds like, Bitcoin is an opportunity for the people to start again and create their own wealth. It is literally allowing people to create their own wealth in the open market however they see fit, either as an early adopter in Bitcoin mining, just like early adopters in gold were rewarded in having gold. Significantly. Right. And the price is always going. And, you know, the discovery of gold, it's very interesting. It's very interesting to watch the discovery of gold and how that made a lot of poor people rich and and made a lot of rich people even richer, just like Bitcoin is going to do. Yeah, you're not rich. Go ahead. Well, the, the, you're not, you know, with, with the Federal Reserve System and, and implicit inflation, you know, inflation of the money supply, you, you're forcing everybody, everybody is required, essentially, if you want to maintain the value of your, of what you've earned, you know, what you've ch- traded for your time and energy, your property, your, your money, your dollars, they're, they're forcing you to essentially invest that and gamble it in the stock market. Who, who, who? Who gets their uh, money from their employer and puts it in the saving and put, puts it in a bank in a savings account yeah, and then waits that, fifty years and pulls it out? You are required. You are required to go gamble it. You have to. Well, you, uh, if you so right now the way the system is set up, and of course I'm not an economy guy, and you guys can go do your own research if this piques your interest. But the way the system is set up right now, you're penalized for saving. And the reason why you're penalized for saving is because those those d bags in Washington are printing to the tune of a minimum of like eighty. Uh, what is the amount they're buying in the mortgage-backed securities every single month? Chat room is it eighty billion? Is that number right? Every single damn month, they're it's just like buying up eighty. Yeah, and, and and people don't 80, don't yeah, really understand that this this money that they're purchasing these bonds for this money is is being traded um, to the government for in exchange for bonds. And these these I mean this money it didn't you know they didn't just pull it out of a bank like they they just generate it and they create it and they right. hand it over to the so federal is, government. So it is devaluing the dollar that is sitting in the savings account, whereas Bitcoin is as as currently experiencing the exact opposite. It rewards you for saving. It rewards you for being smart with your money. It rewards you for. Also for gambling, if you so choose to gamble in the right aspect. In this case, it'd be more like gambling in, in creating infrastructure and marketplace and economy, not necessarily gambling like Satoshi Tice. And creating jobs. Yeah. So I, I find it to be a very interesting, a very interesting sort of, uh, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know if say if it's a, a side society, but it's like this, if, if it's able to achieve some sort of mainstream adoption, it's going to enable a huge amount of a, rep- a repressed population over time. So it's a really big deal if it gets if it gets popular, and if it's unsuccessful, it seems like 
even if it doesn't get to the point where it's 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 it's, ch- it's changing the eco-socionomical situation in countries, it at at minimum will still be around and used as a drug trade money. So it seems like at some level, Bitcoin almost has a built-in success or something exa- almost identical to it. You know what I mean? It's almost like it can't fail. Yeah, its nature kind of almost guarantees at least to some degree that it'll continue to exist and be used, right? Right, because it's, it's, it's the fundamental service and function that it provides is just sort of to, to required by the world we live in now. And, you know, uh, actually, uh, speaking of the banks and um, uh, Silk Road, uh, Max Kaiser was on a was on a um, a, a podcast out of London, uh, the London Reel. That's what it was. And of course, Max Kaiser, the host of Russia's today's uh, Kaiser Report, he went on there to talk about Bitcoin, talked about the Federal Reserve, and uh, I mean, it was like a it was like a forty five minute, fifty minute interview chat that he did. Pretty interesting stuff. Um, some of the some good insight into how Max thinks about some of these things. He's a pretty smart guy. And he talked a little bit. They brought up Silk Road. And since we just covered Silk Road last week, you and I have been talking about it right now. Max's take on Silk Road I thought was interesting. I thought I'd play this excerpt from the interview, and then I'll link the full thing in the show notes. Silk Road, Bitcoin, buying drugs. Okay, let's see. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about HSBC. Okay. okay. There's a bank. They take drugs? They were caught laundering $8 billion of Mexican drug Mexico, cartel yeah. money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they don't deny it. They, they paid maybe a little fine. Um... 60,000 dead Mexicans wore on drugs because of money laundering, thanks to HSBC. The Mexicans with their heads cut off rolling down the street because of HSBC. The, one of the biggest money laundering outfits and drug, yeah. and the uh, drug demand supporters in the, in the world. Okay, so are they the biggest? No, there's one even bigger. It's called Wachovia Bank. They were caught laundering $400 billion in Mexican drug money. They were bought by Wells Fargo, which is now the biggest shareholder, is Warren Buffett. At Warren Buffett's annual meeting where he's playing little ukulele, he's singing about Charlie Munger's cock he's got in his mouth. <laughs> Did he happen to say, oh, I just bought Wells Fargo. They laundered lots of drug money. Mexicans are dead. Happy me, I'm Warren. Happy Warren. Happy Warren. I kill Mexicans. No, he didn't say that, did he? No. But he's complicit. He's complicit in their murder. Okay. He's complicit in the gun running that goes between America and Mexico. He's, he's a terrorist. And I don't use that term loosely. Warren Buffett is a financial terrorist. George Osborne is a financial terrorist. Uh, the heads of Bank of America, HSBC, Barclays, Lloyds, Royal Bank of Scotland, they are financial terrorists. The fact that George Osborne allows terrorism right here in London, unchecked, just running amok in the city is unconscionable. It's tyranny. The people in this country should be outraged. And they should do what they have to do to get restored justice in whatever what? means necessary. Which is what? I leave it up to their imagination. Okay. <laughs> so your point is the Silk Road is a tiny little speck it's, of the it's drug It's fly trade. shit in the pepper. Okay. It's meaningless. And besides, every technology is supported by drugs and sex. Even the Bible starts out with a pornographic story about Adam and Eve. Every single technology, the VCR, the videotape, the DVD, the CD, it all sure. starts with sex, porno, and drugs. Rock and roll is all about sex and drugs. It all, this is the beginning of everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's the beginning of everything. He's, he's just getting warmed up. I cut him off right there. I, just, I was like, all right, that's enough, Max. Thank you very much. <laughs> but kind of makes a point. That's a great uh, point. That's a lot of money that's going into these uh, nefarious acts. Yeah. You want to talk about you want to talk about currencies that are backed by drugs. Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce <laughs> you to the United States dollar. Um, the world reserve currency of drugs. What do you think about his point that um, a lot of really critical technologies have been sort of pioneered by either the facilitating of drugs or the or the distribution of porn. 
I think he's. I mean, I agree with that, and that goes to what we were talking about. How you know the the drug market has at least some kind of baseline, you know, as a point where Bitcoin can cannot cannot fall, you know, further beyond. And you know, I lost my train of thought, but about about Silk Road sort of as as a sort of a a foundation. Trademark. Yeah, a foundation point for the you know for the continued existence. Yeah, of and it. all right, now we're done. I know chat room's getting on our case because we're talking about <laughs> Silk Road again. Commenters got all pissed off that we talked about Silk Road. Name first rule of Fight Club, all that crap. All right, we're done. I just wanted to. I just because it's a podcast and we have the flexibility of continuing to talk about a topic once it's been brought up instead of just talking about it once and then moving on and never mentioning it again like the mainstream media does. Uh, we uh, have that flexibility, so I wanted to, oh. to leverage that to just sort of button up that discussion and now we have done so mr drew and i think having done so brings us to the end of this week's show so don't forget ladies and gentlemen you can watch us live tuesdays 2 p.m pacific 5 p.m eastern 9 p.m gmt and hang out in our awesome chat room thank you guys very much for hanging out with us this week we really appreciate it go over to our subreddit planbshow.reddit.com and get in there we get some activity in there i have some great ideas but we need some people in there drew man thanks for a great show Yeah, thanks. And uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week's episode of Plan B. We'll see you right back here next week.